the helplessness both in George Floyd himself crying out for his mother who is deceased audibly saying that he's through like knowing that coming to the realization that I'm going to die in this moment as the world watches you know primarily starting from the perspective of the black community I think that it has resonated with us once again uh, maybe even more because of the fact that it's sort of this compounded effect of the secondary trauma of also already trying to process Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. Uh, I just think you just have a collective uh, feeling amongst Blacks in America that enough is just really enough. Like, we're just tired of it, we're sick of it. And we've been saying that we're sick of it for a long time. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are discussing George Floyd and the many facets of conversation that are taking place both within society and the church regarding race, social justice, and equality. I am honored to have as my guest today, Michael Nixon, a lawyer who is also the VP of Diversity and Inclusion at Andrews University. So we're going to try and answer some questions regarding the George Floyd case, as well as the social phenomenon that has arisen in its wake. We'll also discuss some practical tips a person can take towards becoming an anti-racist. We also discuss secondary trauma and the effects of witnessing these types of events as a bystander. What are some policy changes that could make a difference? And how can the church contribute to the conversation and the work of social justice? Before we get started, we want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. You can follow our guest today, Michael Nixon, at the Instagram handle at Michael T. Nixon. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. Um, of course, as you may remember, maybe vaguely, there was the O.J. Simpson trial that was happening in the mid-90s. They are in that area, and so it was on all the time. My parents were watching it, and um, so it was just on the TV. So I just remember sort of being riveted by the case. I had no idea what was going on, but I just remember seeing Johnny Cochran and a glove that didn't fit. Um, and of course, yeah. learned much more about the particulars of the case as I got older. But that was like the snapshot of, yeah, I'd love to, you know, go into law, you know, law or legal career. Uh, mm -hmm. Then in law school, I um, still wasn't quite sure exactly what I wanted to do or what I wanted to focus in. But I did know that I wanted to um, help people and be an advocate on behalf of people, uh, whether, you know, through civil rights. And, and I, you know, that was the, the passion point for sure. And so... Um, but didn't know how that would take shape or what it exactly would look like. And so uh, going into my, you know, the middle part of my second year after doing a number of different advocacy related jobs and nothing had quite, you know, it was interesting. It was good work, but nothing had quite piqued my interest yet. Mm -hmm. I took a class on fair housing and fair lending. And I was really just drawn to the area of fair housing law. Just the, the cases interested me. Um, you know, learning more about, you know, things like redlining and, um, and all those different kinds of things and how, uh, you know, segregation and housing was really just legalized separation. Uh, it wasn't something that was illegal. It was very intentional. It was orchestrated by the government um, in very particular ways. Um, 
that was something that really, um, I think, challenged some, some norms for me, for sure. Um, and so connected with that, our school had a fair housing legal clinic, and uh, which gave me the ability to um, represent in my third year um, in law school to represent some clients and, and give advice and actually got to try one administrative case in school and um, was able to um, reach a settlement and get a remedy for a client along with a, a, a colleague student of mine. And so I just really liked the tangible way that you could affect change in that right. area of law. Right. Um, and so I knew that, that that was where I wanted to latch into. Um, and then I thought, you know, with this unique opportunity opening up at Andrews, um, I felt as if uh, I had really gotten clarity on what my personal passion and mission is. And that's just, as I said before, uh, I just feel like my purpose is to to help people in whatever way I can and to advocate and be a voice for the voiceless in whatever ways that I can. And I saw, um, you know, this initiative or this movement, which, you know, spurred conversations, dialogue and this unique opportunity as a, another way to extend that further. And so um, I saw this opportunity as just as just another frame for the kind of work that I was already doing. Mm. That's so wonderful. And and, I, and any of you guys who are watching right now, um, just know that you can ask questions. Right now, we're going to talk a little bit about some recent events, uh, the George Floyd case, and kind of getting your perspective as a lawyer, um, as a VP of diversity of inclusion, some things that you see happening in the way the church can be more interactive, um, and, and hopefully, you know, affect positive change in this area. So it seems to me, and, and I may not be correct, but like that the George Floyd case and and, and the, the visceral reaction to it from the, the lady and, and population in general has has been greater than other cases in recent history. And just getting your perspective, like, why do you think that is? And what kind of core do you think it's touching within America and within especially uh, just minority groups in general who probably experience uh, racism uh, more practically on a regular level? But why today or why you know in recent weeks has this been you know have we reached the level of saying i'm done i'm through what what do you what are your thoughts on that yeah it's really it's a, i think it's a really interesting observation um so i think what i would say on the front end of that is um you know you know primarily starting from the perspective of the black community i think that it has resonated with us once again uh, maybe even more um, because of the fact that it's sort of this compounded effect of the secondary trauma of also already trying to process Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And as we're kind of just starting to wrap our minds and heads around what was happening with those cases and, and more details coming out, and of course, in the case of Ahmaud Arbery, having a video coming out and just, you know, working through the trauma of that, and then to just like right in the middle of that process to just get um, just, you know, an extended Eric Garner part two, um, it almost seemed like it was unreal in, in the similarities and the way that it played out and um, the length of the video and um, the, the helplessness, both in George Floyd himself crying out for his mother who is deceased, um, you know, audibly saying that he's through, like knowing that coming to the realization that I'm going to die in this moment as the world watches, you know, after the fact. Um, 
it just really was just sort of like, I think, a culmination of all the different things that we've seen, you know, dating back to um, in this more recent Black Lives Matter movement, dating back to Trayvon Martin, but of course, predating that with, you know, Amadou Diallo and Rodney King, and of course, the, the legacy of lynchings that have happened in this country. Uh, I just think you just have a collective uh, feeling amongst Blacks in America that enough is just really enough. Like, we're just tired of it. We're sick of it. And we've been saying that we're sick of it for a long time. And um, I think it's also interestingly resonating, at least from what I can see and from what from my perspective. And, you know, sometimes we can have short memories around these things. So you know, I, I don't know that I can go back to, for example, uh, the Trayvon Martin conversation and, and remember how particularly non-Black folks reacted. But one of the things that, you know, I think we have more clarity on now that, that we that was just an early kind of clarion call around that time in 2012 to 2014, around Trayvon Martin's killing in the case, was of course Black Lives Matter and the movement. And it seems like that, although there's still some fragility around that, I, I feel like there's not nearly as much, you know, there, you know, I remember in the run up to 2016, you know, there were, there was a lot of confusion even from democratic candidates who were saying all lives matter as opposed to black lives matter. And now we just had, you know, a whole day yesterday, although I have mixed feelings around how blackout Tuesday was used, but, um, to, to see that number of people just even just say the very basic reality statement that Black Lives Matter um, kind of hit me and said, wow, this is different. I mean, we saw a lot of, you know, our institution and other sister institutions saying it in the Adventist Church, you're seeing companies, uh, Apple Music had a blackout on, you know, iTunes. It was just like, wow, this is really engaging people in a new way. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah. I think, and I'll also say, I think, you know, the fact that we are all, um, you know, quarantined and that, you know, COVID has really gotten us to the place where, you know, this is where we're having our conversations, you know, in spaces right. like we are right now and, and our meetings and work and things of that nature. And that's also where we're getting our news. And, and so we, we can't escape it where, whereas you can usually get into normal routine and sort of turn a blind eye to it um it, it's in your face and um and now we're seeing that there have been uh protests and things of that nature in all 50 states in this country so even if you do go out yeah. um to get your groceries or whatever you know you might see folks you know raising their voice you know in response to this as well so um and that's also been compounded upon the black community disproportionately being affected and impacted by covid mm -hmm. and so that again is another reason that you know, we're just crying out to America in general and wondering whether or not we're being seen or heard. And in the response, you know, in response to the silence that we often see and feel, um, you know, the voice it seems is resonating a bit more. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, anybody listening, anyone who's live with us, you know, you're welcome to ask questions. Um, I just want to kind of follow up something that you said. You said that, um, you know, you weren't entirely okay with the way that, um, you know, people use the blackout Tuesday. Right. So explain a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think the, the main issue with blackout Tuesday was, I think, 
there was a lot there was a lack of clarity around what was specifically supposed to happen um I think maybe once folks got their minds around it, maybe around the middle of the day and understood, okay, this is what we're supposed to be doing, then it made a little bit more sense. But I guess for me, and you know, maybe I just didn't wake up early enough on Tuesday. I, you know, I got up around like nine, nine thirty, and I just, you know, people were texting me about it. I was seeing black squares and things of that nature. And um, I think what people missed was the the clear instruction that they did not want folks to be using the Black Lives Matter hashtag on those posts. Um, it was more of a way to um, tell folks to, hey, take this time to uh, kind of shut down your normal routine and get more educated on the topic. And while I think that that's important and that's an admirable thing that, that needs to be done, um, you know, what I did start to see from particularly a lot of folks, you know, a lot of Black folks who are organizing protests or who are black educators or, or anti-racist educators is that particularly right now, social media is such a huge way for them to, um, to educate and empower, um, to educate folks who are trying to step into allyship or accomplice work and, and also to empower black people. Whereas, you know, for, for us, I don't know just, I don't know that just seeing a bunch of black squares on social media is super empowering. Although, like I mentioned before, there were some kind of like, wow, there's a lot of people engaging and talking about it. But I think what can degrade it is if folks see that as like the only thing they can do or should be doing. Um, and that's what kind of gave me yeah. some mixed feelings about it because, you know, then, you know, not to degrade, I think the ice bucket challenge was great. I know we all remember that, but um, at least in that case, they were encouraging people to, you know, do the challenge, but also donate to ALS research, you know, right. and so hopefully there's something that could come with it. There wasn't clarity necessarily on the tangible action step um, other than to, hey, read read a few books and read these and watch these documentaries. Um, it probably would have been a lot more helpful to say, well, here, so, you know, some bail funds you can donate to. Here are some you know, local BLM organizations that you can connect with or donate resources to yeah. or whatever the case may be. Or here are conversations that, you know, non-Black persons can and should be having with their family members and confronting bigotry and racism head on so that their Black friends don't have to, things of that nature. Yeah. I think it would, have, it would have resonated more and I think been more productive long term. But I guess time will tell um, if folks continue on uh, beyond just posting the black square. Gotcha. And again, those of you who are listening, we just want to say, if you want to write in questions, uh, feel free. I just want to ask you, you know, you work within a religious setting, within the church setting, right? And so how do you see these conversations playing out in the church? And, and we spoke briefly the other day, and, and I was t talking to you about how I come from a mixed uh, background. And so dealing with both um, sides of the racial conversation, right? Uh, I have a, a white side of the family and I have an ethnic side of the family. My mom was Afro-Latina. And, and I feel like being a part of the church is kind of like being a part of a mixed family, right? That you're dealing with people that are supposed to be your brothers and sisters, but they're coming from a diverse background, whether that's belief system or uh, ethnicity or just whatever framework that they're part of. So 
how do you see these conversations taking place in the church? And like, you know, what's the current climate and, and what are the conversations that we should be having if we're wanting to move forward and kind of be a leader or a model really um, in the space of uh, racial equality and equity? Yeah, so, and I did want to just say real quick, because I did see a comment from someone who mentioned that, you know, donation isn't an option for everyone. I totally understand that. Not everyone is in the position to donate money, particularly we have upwards of 40 million Americans unemployed right now due to COVID already. Yeah. Um, and so I understand that resources and money is tight right now. So um, for folks like you know me or others who are privileged to still be working, it's incumbent upon us to give what we can, um, both to families who are in need due to COVID as well as um, you know the, the movement. And, and I'll just say, that there are some non-monetary things you can do. You can you can call. You can make calls to you know, your local district attorneys and things of that nature to demand justice. You can get engaged with uh, local town hall meetings and, and, and city council meetings, uh, where there you can con you can converse with local politicians who can affect um, you know hopefully policing techniques and measures on the local level and things of that nature. So. Um, to the extent that we can, I think there are definitely other ways we can raise our voice and get engaged in, in the conversation. And so to your question about the church, um, I resonate with your analogy on dealing with the um, sort of dual, uh, um, sort, of, sort of the dual, um, you know, personas, if you will, that we carry as Black Christians, um, because you know, you're, you're oftentimes in Christian circles wondering, you know, can I be my authentically Black self in this space and that be accepted, that be celebrated, that be affirmed, or do I need to do things such as code switching and things of that nature in order to navigate through those spaces in a way where I don't come off as a threat or, I, you know, I don't come off as someone, you know, who is angry, you know, dealing with the caricatures of the angry black men and angry black women and, and, and all the different connotations that come with that. Um, and I think particularly for, for black women in ministry, uh, you know, for someone like you who is, you know, in ministry, you know, and pursuing that uh, as a career, dealing with that baggage, um, you know, in the church context of, you know, particularly around issues like this, because if you speak up as a as a black woman pastor, you're already dealing with folks that number one, don't think that you should be in that position, let alone be speaking so freely um, into what it means to be black in America and also be black and Christian. So I think that, you know, these days and really often, um, it, can, it, it can just be challenging. I just wanna affirm that it can just be challenging to continue to particularly um, be navigating in predominantly white Christian spaces. Um, I resonate oftentimes with um, the great poet James Baldwin's quote, to be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, the question I have for Christianity is, is there a safe space for black rage? Uh, because that rage is actually very holy and, and often instances and, and do we understand yeah. the, the 
the very fundamental um, biblical roots of that rage? Um, and, and do we make space for it? And, and do we um, allow for that to be, to be processed? And so I think the first step, particularly in the church, is to uh, stop telling Black Christians in particular how to process that rage, um, stop policing how they use their voice, and um, you know, stepping outside of their fragility yeah. and listening with an empathetic ear, even when it doesn't come out the way that they want it to come out, or that they, you know, that doesn't sound like the perfect soundbite or the, you know, the perfect, you know, kumbaya, you know, we're all one, you know, type of thing, and which. It always has to land there in order for everybody to feel comfortable, right? And yeah. just allowing folks to be authentic with the reality that we are a part of systems in Christianity and Adventist Christianity is no different that have been shaped by whiteness, white supremacy, white superiority um, to the subjugation and oftentimes exclusion of folks who are non-white, you know, period, you know, that's the end of the sentence, you know, and, and even being able to say and acknowledge that is just so difficult for uh, American Christianity to admit right. um, all the various different ways that we have allowed a belief in the hierarchy of um, we see, first of all, you no. Know, root in biblical or historical facts um, and the way that that vision or that picture of God is used to then uh, dictate who's valuable and who's not within and without Christian spaces you know right. and so I, I think being able to wrestle with those those deep truths and really you know having you know some truth telling some confession some lamentation uh, way before we start using our, our favorite R word in the church, which is reconciliation, mm -hmm. uh, before we even get to that, uh, we need to have some really long-term and extensive, serious conversations about how we got here and how the Christian church has been complicit in that. And I, I know mm -hmm. we're going to get to resources later, but a really good um, resource just for American Christianity in general that I would encourage folks to read is The Color of Compromise mm -hmm. uh, by a friend of mine named uh, Jamar Tisby. Um, and the subscript for that book is uh, The Church's Complicity in American Systemic Racism. And so um, it lines out, he lines out in that book um, some of the very tangible ways that um, at the very inception of this country that Christianity was wrapped up in the system of systemic and institutionalized uh, racism, which you know manifested itself in human chattel slavery and other things, all the way up to 2020. Wow, I just want to affirm you because, like, I really resonate with that whole opening up space for lamentation and for rage. I mean, I think even as a woman, you know, it's we've often been taught to conceal our rage and to not be angry, um, and I think that the ultimate act of love is holding space, you know, for someone to be themselves in a way that you don't need to correct it. You don't need to try and change it. You can let that 
a person or community continue to to experience what they're experiencing in that moment. And then with that, you know, empathy and listening, now, now you're ready to come on board and really understand where they're coming from in a way that you can begin to have a dialogue and a conversation in a place that you're starting to understand. And so I just want to affirm that. I think that's that's exactly what we need. And sometimes we get too caught up in the do's and don'ts and making sure that we are getting back on track of being loving and peaceful. And like you said, the R word, the reconciliation, uh, when there's so much that needs to take place before that happens. And so that's, that's brilliant. And I just even, okay, so from a legal perspective, kind of getting some of your um, expertise, like, I think a question that some people have had, and that's arisen is like, what do you do if you're a bystander in a situation like the George Floyd case, like you see a police officer um, using excessive force, that they are abusing their authority, you're, you're present, and you know what is what's the recourse? Is there a possibility to to interfere? And should there be policy changes around this? Like, what can a person do other than sit by and watch somebody die? Because I feel like that's the most helpless feeling a person can have to say that there's nothing that I could have done to prevent this? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to try to keep this answer somewhat concise, but there, mm -hmm. there are a couple of really important pieces of that because it's a really important question that you're asking. Um, on the front end, I just want to say this. I, I want to particularly, it was really for everyone because, you know, uh, Everyone experiences varying levels of trauma in, in a variety of different situations. But, you know, for Black people, for allies, accomplices, for anyone who has a heart for humanity, uh, there's going to be secondary trauma that you experience from um, witnessing these killings. Um, uh, I, I'm already sort of now, I think we're all navigating it, whether you watch the video or not. Um, you know, even not seeing the video, oftentimes your mind is, you see the face, you know, you know the name, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. And so you, you're envisioning what may have happened based on the way it's been described to you by friends, by the media, whatever the case may be. So you get so bogged down into those details that even if you don't see it, it's almost like you've seen it, you know? And so then for folks who have seen it, um, you, you're just you're dealing with the fact that you've just seen someone die. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just very, you know, I, 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 what I like to say to people is that I sometimes get numb by the conversation that happens afterward, but I could never say that I've gotten numb to, to the visuals, you know, it'll always affect me in some way, shape or form to see that kind of a video. And so um, I think it's just important to, for folks to understand and recognize um, that there are various mental health, emotional, even spiritual effects that you may have in the wake of this particular situation. And that can only heighten or escalate if you if you witness something like this in person. And yeah. so getting to, to that piece of it, um, what can you do if you're in person witnessing something like this happening? You know, to be quite honest, I, I really think that the persons, you know, connect who witnessed George Floyd being killed um, did about as much as you can do in that particular situation um, in order for 
it to be ensured that more people didn't get hurt because in that in that particular scenario you are you're seeing what's happening to that person and i and i think that particularly for the black persons who were witnessing what was happening in person were any of them to try to launch into any kind of defense or breaking up of that particular situation they're automatically just assuming the risk that their life could be taken you know that that's what what happened there and you know it very well could escalate to a point where even others that are on onlookers or bystanders could also be hurt and so as helpless as a feeling as it as it would have to be to to see someone being killed in front of you i think you know aggressively saying to those officers what their duty is to do like people continue to do um you know constantly constantly i think that needs to be something that you can like trying to get through to that person and saying that you know you are moving way outside of what would be considered reasonable force right now um and, and you need to stop and and to try to implore upon that person that you're being recorded and you know the sad reality about this sort of crowdsourcing justice now is that you know you at least have a more likely um it's more likely that you would prevent or stop something like that happening were the officers to know that they're being recorded you know mm -hmm. and so although this particular officer did not care and the three officers that were with him did not stop um that's really your best chance i'd say because you know to do anything else would be to put yourself in danger right. now as it pertains to um this whole concept of excessive force it's important to know um what excessive force is and what reasonable force is and so essentially reasonable force as a general rule it is the fact it's basically the fact that police may use whatever level of force is reasonable and necessary and there are hundreds of cases that um, have gone as far up to the Supreme Court uh, you know arguing about what is reasonable and necessary right I mean yeah. those kind of seem like just kind of out there words but you know kind of defined by the beholder but whatever force is reasonable and necessary to make an arrest that's the basic uh, definition of reasonable force um, so for example you know uh, I'll use sort of a wild example, shooting an unarmed person who has stolen an apple from a fruit salad, you know, from a fruit stand, excuse me, would clearly not be reasonable, right? I mean, it yeah. was just like, that's, that's you know, they're not, they're unarmed, they're not causing any kind of a, um, you know, risk to anyone around them. And so, so the levels of force work all the way up to, of course, deadly force, which we're talking about right now. And um, in the case of, of deadly force, uh, what the idea there is that um, deadly force can be used in, in situations where um, it's clear that a, um, a perpetrator of a particular crime is putting um, someone else in danger of deadly force or the officer themselves. Um, but then the second qualifier to that is you the, the officer is certain that their use of deadly force will not put anyone else in danger as well so that's why for example chase someone and they have another person as a as a human shield with like a gun to their head or something 
and you know the, the officers are waiting for a clear shot or whatever the case may be um, that's because were they even in a case where they're trying to prevent that person from using deadly force were they to you know accidentally shoot that person that would be seen as excessive force or that, that would be seen as um, a, a improper use of deadly force now so you know it could seem as an, at a conceptual level so essentially when you're thinking about force the basic thing there is um, cops or police officers excuse me are um, there they are um, allowed by law to meet the level of force that they're receiving essentially like anything from there or down would be seen as reasonable force uh, they're they're not um, allowed by law to escalate beyond that level of force so that's why you know the stealing fruit example you're clearly way escalating over the, the, the amount of force that would be necessary to apprehend that person. Um, and if somebody runs away with an apple, I mean, you'll just have to catch him the next time you see him. There, I mean, there's, there's no, you know, you, you wouldn't have gotcha. the, the legal right do that. Mm -hmm. But so connected with that and moving into sort of policy changes, that piece of it, one of the major policies that I think need to be revisited and there are a lot of, um, you know, good books and articles out there about it that I would encourage our viewers to look deeper into. But there is this concept called qualified immunity. And that's a word that comes up a lot. And, and that's something I think maybe more and more folks are hearing about, but it's this uh, legal principle. And, and any kind of immunity is essentially um, a legal theory which um, bars you from being held um, uh, liable for, um, you know, breaking any particular law. And so qualified immunity specifically, it protects public officials from civil liability for violations of rights so long as they were reasonably performing their duties and the rights involved were not clearly established. And so in excessive force cases, because uh, this is the other thing, if folks are wondering, you know, what, what is the remedy or recourse for excessive force, what I would, love, what I would like to say to people um, is, number one, if you're a victim of excessive force, um, my, my first desire is that you make it through that situation alive. You know, okay. that, that would be, you know, the, the best, you know, the, the best chance or the, the best, um, you know, that's really the best case scenario because, you know, you're never going to be able to, um, you know, exact justice for that excessive force that you experience in the moment. Like the, the, the goal there should be, I need to make it through this alive, right? That, that should just be your thought process. And so you'll seek your legal remedy likely on the back end in a civil suit against that particular public official or officer um, and, and making the civil rights complaint uh, for monetary and injunctive relief, um, usually under you know Civil Rights Code 1983 um, is where those cases would be filed under. Um, and it would have to be adjudicated in court. And so once it would get to court, again, there's this theory of qualified immunity, which then makes it harder to evaluate these situations where there's this hazy border, again, between excessive and acceptable force, you know? Because now, you know, it's described this immunity as them reasonably performing their duties. Um, right. And so it gets again to this sort of hazy concept of, of reasonable, you know, what's reasonable, you know, yeah. um, what, what, what is that, um, 
you know, defined to be and what we've seen over the course of time through a variety of different uh, pieces of legislation, uh, you know, you know, particularly around the, the start of the war on drugs in the mid, mid 70s to early 80s, continuing that through into the age of mass incarceration into the 90s and, and, and into the early 2000s as well. Yeah. We've seen a very a pro law and order, mm -hmm. which is a, a certain pro politician's favorite fra phrase right now. Uh, you know, we see that really um, informing and shaping a lot of the policy that's happened in this area, um, definitely prior to 2014. Gotcha. Um, uh, it's really been a race on both sides of the aisle. There's been this bipartisan effort to be seen as the toughest on crime, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that has allowed a large amount of latitude to uh, police departments across the country where this theory of qualified immunity has really been expanded um, in a large way over the course of time to the point where now we really need politicians both on the local and federal level to pass some clear legislation uh, either eradicating qualified immunity or dictating in much clearer terms where, where that protection would be available and where it won't be because now it's really it's turning into sort of a you know pardon the pun get out of jail free card yeah. for um you know using excessive force and then making this reasonability argument and it just being accepted by courts all across the country right. so if i had to pick one policy change that we need to look at a lot more clearly i mean there's lots of them um and and i think voting and understanding uh, what, what the platforms are of folks who are trying to be chiefs of police, um, district attorneys, prosecutors, those kinds of things. A lot of those different persons really hold the keys to um, how the criminal justice system operates locally. Yeah. In addition to that, I think we need some clear policy to um, either eradicate or revisit and redefine um, what the protections qualified immunity gives to police officers and other public officials. Yeah, I really appreciate that because that's not something I didn't know about that law in particular. And I think it's important, like, you know, like you said, the the force needed to apprehend someone like you look at the George Floyd case this is somebody who's already been apprehended, already been in custody, you know, the, the force that was used upon him, like, is there's no excuse, you know, and, and so it's, it's good to know uh, about these things. Do you think, and this is kind of a, just a follow-up question, do you think that sometimes the relationships that, you know, the police and the court systems have because that they're, they're, you know, they're often working together with the prosecuting attorneys and et cetera, do you think that that type of relationship also influences the outcome, uh, you know, when, when officers get convicted of crimes and, and how do you break up that type of relationship in a way where justice can be better served? Oh, I mean, that, that's a great observation. I think that that is, um, that's one of the core problems and issues with the way that the system works currently. I mean, in the Ahmaud Arbery case, you know, as you know, um, you know, uh, the older McMichael was a former police officer, a private investigator for the local prosecutor. Um, that prosecutor called at the scene of the crime. You know, in that particular instance, there were officers on the scene that wanted to arrest the McMichaels, 
but because they were well connected, you know, they called in, you know, the, the attorney called in and said, do not arrest them. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't until a video went viral that these men were even arrested, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and the person who captured the video ends up being arrested because it becomes clear that he was a part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so just try to even <laughs> make sense of all of that foolishness, you know? And so if there were no video, all three of them would not be in, in prison right now, or I mean, sorry, would not be in jail awaiting trial. And so um, it's clear that those relationships that oftentimes exist, um, that's of course somewhat of an extreme case, but there are a number of examples of, again, you know, your local prosecutors or detectives, private investigators uh, that work in concert sometimes with police departments, a lot of times they're former officers, um, and then just your run of your your straight up um, police departments, uh, you know, that are are really invested and built upon protecting one another, protecting the shield, and that's really their motto and their mantra. And um, so, it, once you start to work your way up the system and you see all these connections, it's hard to see, um, oftentimes, um, how um, there's a clear path to justice in a lot of these cases. Um, and then. Beyond that, even questions at times around the construction of juries and is this jury really a jury of someone's peers? Right. Uh, sometimes the forum jumping that they'll do to get the jury that they want mm-hmm. um, for those, that kind of a thing and, and the, the ways that they'll use um, sort of their, you know, because you get a certain amount of um, options to remove, eliminate someone from a jury pool and that kind of a thing and in the way that that there are a lot of things that that really uh, things like community review boards and things of that nature um, to try to um, to try to to add an extra layer within the various different processes particularly uh, around the grand jury process that is very heavily orchestrated by your local prosecutor they pretty much dictate the evidence that gets in and doesn't get in the witnesses that are called and that are not and and although their position to present the case in the light that's most favorable for conviction oftentimes if they prevent if they present a very light case or make it appear that you know there isn't evidence that a conviction will end up happening then the case never sees trial and the grand jury is convinced that it shouldn't move forward Mm -hmm. you know so i think all these different tactics um that have been embedded in the system to protect um uh police officers and others who are well connected need to be examined, need to be looked at, and ultimately, I believe, need to be overturned. And we, we need to scrap the slate clean. Um, the history of policing in this country in general is just, um, it's a dumpster fire, uh, to say the least. It, it was implemented in the wake of the Reconstruction era, uh, largely to protect uh, white property in this country uh, from the perceived fear of recently uh, freed black persons Mm -hmm. who they were afraid would try to exact revenge for slavery. Mm -hmm. You know, when in the majority of cases, uh, black people just wanted to be free and have Mm -hmm. an opportunity to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, but, But even as we were making strides in the reconstruction era that became a problem and then in came the jim crow era um and all the various different um reestablishments of bigotry that came in the wake of it much of which was 
uh, the foundation of much of that was the police department and, and, and policing in this country. And so um, it just really needs to be uprooted and we need to rethink uh, what policing looks like, feels like, and sounds like in America, particularly um, as, as they're uh, exacted towards black and brown bodies. Mm. I really love that answer. And so I've, I love that you're able to just really pick that apart. And anybody who's watching, again, if you have any questions, um, please feel free to write them in. We're wrapping up with our last question. So this is our last opportunity to, to hear what you guys have to say and what's on your mind. But just a practical takeaway, like what are some things that people can do to be anti-racist? Because there are people who want to be advocates, and who are listening to this conversation and, and they're wanting to put some things into practice. And so what are some practical things that people can, can begin to implement? So I think that the first step for all of us, um, and I think I touched on it a bit earlier, but I think the, the really first critical step that needs to be taken um, in America by everyone, but, but in particular by white Americans is to uh, divest from the construct of whiteness, from the belief in white supremacy, and a hierarchy of human value. Um, those those are just really critical things that need to happen. Now, I say all of us because you know we we are all shaped in some degree by the construct of whiteness. Now, this is not to demonize people who are white, you know, because that is just a race is a social construct, but. Uh, it, it, it is the way that whiteness has been weaponized in um, both our country and in, a, in the globe to, again, establish this hierarchy of human value where whites sit at the top and non-whites are subjugated below that um, at different scales. And so um, I, I really think that's a, there, there are lots of tools out there that can help folks to do that. Um, the, the, you know, two books that come to mind are, um, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo and, and Waking Up White. I, the name of the author escapes me right now, but those are two really good books that help uh, particularly white folks process that. Um, th th there's also a book called So You Want to Talk About Race, which is a really good book that came out recently um, that folks who want to engage in this conversation better um, uh, should do and can do. Um, and I think it's really critical for folks to commit to uh, the intentional long-term work of anti-racism. That's really the solution. Um, and so a critical book that I would suggest is Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, and within that book, um, I'll just provide a quick definition on anti-racism so folks know and understand what that is. Uh, in the, you know, Kendi basically says in the book, that to be anti-racist is to think nothing is behaviorally wrong or right, inferior or superior with any of the racial groups, okay? So he basically says that whenever the anti-racist sees individuals behaving positively or negatively, the anti-racist sees exactly that, individuals behaving positively or negatively, not representatives of whole races. So I think this is really key, for example, with the discussion around peaceful protests when you have rioting happening yeah, and yeah. when reports even come out that that's happening largely by folks who are not Black Lives Matter protesters and are actually non-Black, um, but yet Black people in particular have to carry the weight of the perceptions around what it means for that negative behavior to be happening around a peaceful protest, you know? And, and so racist thinking 
um, imputes that upon the entire black race and the 99% of people who are peacefully raising their voice, as opposed to the small minority of folks who are uh, trying or who are opportunists and who are trying to hijack the narrative. Um, but, but because we see that through a racist lens, we can't just see it for what it is and move that to a side and stay focused on the, the real issue. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so he continues there, to be anti-racist is to de-racialize behavior, to remove the tattooed stereotype from every racialized body. Behavior is something humans do, not racists do. So therefore an anti-racist then, just to be real quick, is someone who is expressing an anti-racist idea or supporting an anti-racist policy with their actions. And an anti-racist idea is any idea that says the racial groups are equal. And so it's, it's kind of fundamental there, but I think really adopting that as a practice and, 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 and a key there is advocating for anti-racist policies. And so what that says is wherever we see inequities in our society, whether that's educational outcomes or housing segregation or mm -hmm. uh, nutrition, nutritional food de deserts or lack of access to healthcare and how that's happening in predominantly black or brown communities, then that means that our conclusion is that racism is contributing to those outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so that requires us now to respond to that with anti-racist policies, which makes the scales more equitable once again and puts the races back on a level playing field because the fundamental belief is that all races are equal. And mm -hmm. so uh, it, would be, it would be amazing if All Lives Matter was an anti-racist chant as opposed to a racist one, which is trying to shut down the, the need for us to proclaim that Black Lives Matter in the midst of a country and society which has so many uh, political, policy-based and driven realities which tell us that we're not equal, you know, mm -hmm. and that our lives don't matter. And mm -hmm. so um, that's, that, that's what I think is the, the most critical thing that folks can do is to understand mm -hmm. what these racial disparities are in their context and then advocate for policies which can overturn uh, those inequitable tables. Yeah, it's such a great observation when you're talking about, you know, looking at the protests and looking at the, the fringe minority of the protests who are, are causing some of the destructions. I mean, I think we see the same conversations happening, especially when it comes to groups like the Muslim group, right? Uh, we have the Muslim ban that happened and it's like, we it, just because a fringe part of it is radicalized, we see the entire Muslim group as like, you know, as, as being radicals. And again, I think it's a product of of racist undertones in that type of thinking uh, to not be able to separate what the belief system is or, or the people behind who believe in a peaceful uh, uh, practice of their religion versus those who tend to radicalize it. Uh, another thing too, that I think would be great. And I feel like I've had a really great privilege of, of growing up in a very diverse community and Adventism in itself is very diverse among a lot of, uh, when it comes to churches, you know, uh, it, it has the, it's a worldwide church. It's very eclectic in that way. I think getting into communities that you are not familiar with, that you haven't been acculturated to, is a great way to begin uh, to, to understand perspectives outside of yourself. And it's a, it's a great way to begin to help break down any of those anti-racist sentiments that you might be holding and not even recognize that as a as a part of your consciousness so 
um, answering this last question, somebody had asked, uh, basically, do you think the general conference should show support for social activist groups? Um, you know, I, so I, in an, in an ideal world, absolutely. Yes, they, they absolutely should. Um, I, I believe that, um, you know, we're called in Christianity in general to be the, the hands and feet uh, of Christ in a world that so desperately needs it. And, um, you know, in thinking about the body of Christ, cause that's an analogy that folks use often, um, you know, I really think that one of the reasons why oftentimes corporately our institutions, because I will say that there are a lot of Adventist persons, there are a lot of Adventist churches, pastors, uh, members, even leaders that are speaking out. Um, but I think one of the reasons that we corporately have an issue with this is because um, we've really committed to a political quietism mm -hmm. in, in our church, for sure. Um, and we have, we have dumbed down political conversations to partisanship. And so whenever a political topic comes up, we jump into, well, we can't be a registered Democrat or Republican, or we can't align ourselves with any party, so then we're not going to say anything. And, and we allow the partisanship fear to prevent us from engaging in political conversation. Uh, well, at least the political conversations that we don't like to, because of course, as we all know, we're very engaged with the uh, religious and social activist reality of religious liberty. We're very, we're very well engaged in that, and we spend millions of dollars um, throughout our, our our institutional church in advocating for um, the freedom to to worship in the way that we deem, which goes, of course, beyond even Sabbath keeping as well. And so um, one of the other reasons why I think it's difficult is because in thinking about the body of Christ, I think, you know, justice work, in my view, is the work of the feet. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I think we all, you know, everybody wants to be the mouth. We all love a great smile. We love eyes. We, li we like hands that can grab and move things. And, um, you know, we even love hair and things of that nature. But if somebody said to you that, you know, their favorite part of the body is the feet, you'd look at them like that person's super weird. Like what? That's just odd. Like people <laughs> don't say that, you know what I mean? And, and so, you know, meat can, you know, feet can get grimy. Feet can get, you know, if you're not lotioning them, they could get ashy. I mean, let's just be real. They can, you know, you can develop fungus, you can get athlete's foot, all this different type of stuff. And a justice work is like that. It's messy. It's, it's, it's not going to look like your 11 o'clock morning service. It's, there's not going to be a strict, uh, a, a, you know, regimented liturgy to how it's going to go or the way that it should look or uh, how it will even make us feel all the time. But at the end of the day, if we don't engage in that very real justice work, then the church will remain stagnant because you can't move anywhere without your feet. And so... I think what the GC, what, what others in the church leadership have to understand is that if we don't get engaged in the gritty, uh, gutter level, um, not pretty, not, not uh, you know, popular or politically expedient work of justice, uh, then we will remain stationary. And instead of being a, mo a movement, 
we will establish and create monuments. Mm. And unfortunately, too many things that we've established in our church have become monuments. We have monuments of beliefs. We have monuments of worship styles. We have monuments of uh, who should or shouldn't be a pastor. We have monuments of what songs we should or shouldn't be singing. We have monuments of, uh, you know, who can or can't be in leadership in our church. And if, if the leadership of our church does not reflect the diversity, the beautiful diversity that you were talking about that we have in our church, you know, we have a monument of colorblindness that says, well, we're all one race, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not moving anywhere on a lot of these different conversations and issues. And mm-hmm. it's because we're not committing to that work of the feet. And once we do, the spirit of God will pour out and it will lead us. And so I, I'm, I'm waiting for that day to come. But while we wait, I'm going to do whatever I can from mm-hmm. in my sphere of influence you know, you know, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but but of power and a sound mind. So I'm going to do whatever um, I can. And I missed out. And love is, is in there as well uh, to uh, to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly uh, before our God. Um, and and hopefully, as that continues to to move forward, um, folks will first of all see how this is uniquely rooted to the image of God, the character of God. And, and the, the divine dance that is the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the complete, uh, perfect unity and harmony that they live within and how that compels them to, um, to live in an other-centered reality, which pushes and compels them to uh, not think just about where they're at, but, but what the other in that Godhead needs. And so us as image bearers of that God need to reflect that same kind of ethic. I hope this episode provided some answers to the many questions and uncertainties of recent events. My hope is that you receive tools to help you navigate difficult conversations that can facilitate change within your community. Recommended readings for this week are The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, by Jamar Tisby. White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. So you want to talk about race? Ijama Olu. How to be an anti-racist? Ibram X. Kendi. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Michael Nixon. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at Advent Next. You can follow our guest at the Instagram handle at Michael T. Nixon. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next week.